The former Confederate general entered the ruined city of Richmond from the south, and in the midst of a heavy April shower, his route took him through the portion of city that was most thoroughly burned in the evacuation fires of April the 2nd. People stopped, stared, or pointed as he made his way up Main Street. To them, he tipped his hat. Eventually, he turned and stopped in front of a three-story red brick house at 707 East Franklin. There, he dismounted Traveler, gave the reins to another, opened the iron gate, walked to the eight steps to the portico, climbed them, turned, took off his muddy hat, bowed to those that had gathered, opened the door, and disappeared. And that, I feel certain, was the way he would have liked it, to move past the war and for the rest of his days be nothing more than a constructive and positive citizen. However, it seems history won't let him. This is the story of a man, a marble man, who, as of late, has become a lightning rod. This is the story of the last days of Robert E. Lee. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. For the man who just surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia, the document was simply General Orders Number 9. The words were Lieutenant Colonel Charles Marshall. The sentiment was all Robert E. Lee. After four years of arduous service, marked by unsurpassed courage and fortitude, the Army of Northern Virginia has been compelled to yield to overwhelming numbers and resources. I need not tell the brave survivors of so many hard-fought battles who have remained steadfast to the last that I have consented to the result from no distrust of them. But feeling that valor and devotion would accomplish nothing that would compensate for the loss that must have attended the continuance of the contest, I determined to avoid the useless sacrifice of those whose past services have endeared them to their countrymen. By the terms of the agreement, officers and men can return to their homes and remain until exchanged. You will take with you the satisfaction that proceeds from the consciousness of duty faithfully performed, and I earnestly pray that a merciful God will extend to you his blessing and protection. With our increasing admiration of your constancy and devotion to your country, and a grateful remembrance of your kind and generous considerations for myself, I bid you all an affectionate farewell. Though Robert E. Lee did not attend the stacking of arms, he remained as long as his soldiers did. Sometime on April the 12th, with a small escort, he began the 100-plus-mile journey back to his family in Richmond as a paroled prisoner of war. Eight days later, 
in a letter to an exiled Confederate President Jefferson Davis, who still wanted to resist, the former commander of the Army of Northern Virginia wrote, Mr. President, a partisan war may be continued, but I see no prospect by that means of achieving a separate independence. To save useless effusion of blood, I would recommend measures be taken for suspension of hostilities and the restoration of peace. Robert E. Lee accepted the military verdict. Jefferson Davis never did. Back in Richmond, at 707 East Franklin, the first to greet him was his 56-year-old invalid wife, Mary Anna Randolph Custis Lee, the great-granddaughter of Martha Washington. Then followed his children. His sons, 32-year-old George Washington Custis Lee, 27-year-old William Henry Fitzhugh Lee, better known as Rooney, and three daughters, the quite independent 29-year-old Mary Custis, 24-year-old Eleanor Agnes, and the prettiest, his favorite, 20-year-old Mildred Child Millie. His youngest son, 21-year-old Robert E. Lee Jr., Rob, wasn't there. He was with the fleeing Confederate president down in Greensboro, North Carolina. He would arrive two weeks later. At home, in the beginning, Lee slept a lot, left the house very little. But that did not stop the flood of those who hoped to visit with him. Two days after his return, the photographer Matthew Brady arrived and wanted him to sit for a photograph. To that request, Lee said, It is utterly impossible, Mr. Brady. How can I sit for a photograph with the eye of the world upon me as they are today? It would seem that if he were with us this particular day in our modern times, and in response to how many now view him, he might make use of the very same remark. Back then, Brady beat a tactical retreat, but got in touch with a mutual family friend who agreed to intercede with Mrs. Lee. The end run worked, and so a reluctant Lee gathered on the back porch and posed for a series of images. About the same time, a reporter from the New York Herald arrived, and there were more. An Irish veteran from his pre-war 2nd U.S. Cavalry days came by and, overcome with emotion, tried to kiss him. So many visitors showed up that his family rotated as doorkeepers to screen those that dropped by. To avoid crowds or create a scene, he took his walks at night. The house owner, John Stewart, told Lee that he could stay as long as he desired without rent. But the general said he preferred, in his own words, some little quiet home in the woods where I can procure shelter and my daily bread, if permitted by the victor. He did add, I wish to get Mrs. Lee out of the city as soon as practical. All that went on hold Wednesday, June the 7th, when a federal jury in Norfolk indicted him for treason. Six days later, the accused wrote Lieutenant General U.S. Grant, I had supposed that the officers and men of the Army of Northern Virginia were, by terms of the surrender, protected by the United States government from molestation so long as they conformed to its conditions. 
Also in that communication, Lee included his application to President Andrew Johnson for amnesty and pardon. Grant agreed with Lee's interpretation and stood up to his commander-in-chief. He even threatened to resign if the new President Johnson forced him to go against the word he gave at Appomattox. On Tuesday, June 20th, Johnson gave in, and Grant wrote to reassure Lee that he would not stand trial. It was about this time that a letter to his brother revealed something that he kept very private, his view on race. In that letter to Carter, he offered an opinion on his brother's use of free black labor. He wrote, I have always observed that whenever you find the Negro, everything is going down around him, and wherever you find the white man, you see everything around him improving. Well, the war did not change Lee's hierarchical assumptions about race, but publicly his actions spoke quite differently. It was June, and the setting was St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond. As soon as Reverend Dr. Charles Minigarode delivered the invitation for worshipers to come forward to receive the sacraments, a tall, well-dressed black man stood and approached the rail. For all gathered that day, there was a pregnant pause. Usually, black participation came after all whites had taken communion. To break the frozen moment, there was a man on the left side of an aisle who rose from his seat, walked forward, and knelt near the African-American. It was Lee, and his action broke the ice. Members came forward. That month, June, Lee finally got out of Richmond. Elizabeth Randolph Cook offered the Lees a vacant house on her property, which was about halfway between Richmond and Charlottesville. Lee accepted. And on Wednesday, June the 28th, the family moved up the James River and Kanawha Canal to a little landing near the village of Oakland. Doing so, he left behind his past. Stratford Hall his boyhood in Alexandria, his time at Arlington, and the defense of eastern Virginia. Confronting his future, the family spent the rest of the summer in a little wooden-framed two-room over two-room house called Derwent. It was there he visited friends and relatives, took rides on his favorite Mount Traveler, and began to think of writing a work that would cover his campaigns with the Army of Northern Virginia. However, an August visit took care of that. 58-year-old Judge John W. Brockenbrough, the newly elected rector of a small school in Lexington, Virginia, came to call. Came unannounced. After borrowing $50 to make the trip and garbed in a borrowed suit, the judge notified the general that on August the 4th, the trustees of Tiny Washington College unanimously elected Lee as their new college president. It was quite a reach for the little school that was almost destroyed by the war. In fact, a Pennsylvania regiment still made use of some of the college buildings. Lee listened. For the presidency and the teaching of a class, he was offered the use of a house and garden, plot of land to raise vegetables, a percentage of tuition fees, and a salary of $1,500. 
an amount the college did not have, but hoped to. Washington College was not alone for the University of the South in Suwannee, and the University of Virginia had also made offers. To be quite honest, it was not the thing he had thought of. Back in the early 1850s, he had to be arm-twisted to serve as superintendent of West Point. Yet he pondered the offer for two weeks. During that time, he sought advice from many. Former Virginia Governor John Letcher wrote, You can do a vast amount of good in building up this institution and disseminating the blessings of education among our people. Yet Lee had doubts, particularly about the teaching aspect. He did not like making speeches, so he wrote the trustees that he should probably decline, for he did, in his words, not feel able to undergo the labor of conducting classes in regular courses of instruction. And he worried that he might, again his words, draw upon the college a feeling of hostility That being written, he then turned around and more or less kept the door ajar with, should you, however, take a different view. On August the 31st, the board decided it would not require him to teach a class and enthusiastically embraced him as their new president. Quite simply, they were ecstatic. And so Robert E. Lee, a soldier for all his life, became an educator. He accepted the position first offered by a man in a borrowed suit, traveling on borrowed money, and now began to move his family to a school he had never seen and to a place he had never been. On September the 15th, he set out alone on Traveler. On the 18th, he arrived in Lexington, a little mountain town of some 2,000. Named to honor the town in Massachusetts where another rebellion began, He rode in about 1 p.m. dressed in a gray suit. It was his old uniform minus all Confederate insignia and buttons as mandated by federal authorities. Two days later, he met with the trustees and then retired to the Lexington Hotel awaiting repairs to the president's house and the arrival of his family. While officials at Washington College were elated, others were not. Upon learning of Lee's appointment, the New York Independent wrote, As president, he must look after the morals of young men. If he desires to impress upon them the obligations of truthfulness, he can remind them of the oath he took to support and defend the government of the United States and how he kept that oath the last four years, the bloodiest and guiltiest traitor in all the South. That man we make president of a college. Unfazed, trustees showed the new president the grounds, which were bare and, frankly, chewed up from the war. They told him they were beginning a fund drive, and the hook for donors was that their gift would go to supplement his salary. Lee quickly squashed that. For the opening day of classes, October the 2nd, the trustees envisioned a brass band, young girls robed in white, songs and the like. The general squashed that, too. At 9 a.m. on the Monday, the 2nd, there was a prayer, a brief welcome. Lee took an oath, signed a copy of that oath. Judge Brockenbro handed him the keys to the buildings on campus, And now 
College President Lee went to work. Oh, he did sign another document that day because he had to apply for a special pardon by President Johnson himself. He, before a notary public, added another document to his previous submitted pardons request, a signed oath. That document would later, well, it would be a story in itself. The new president of Washington College attacked his duties. He had some 50 students and made an effort to learn their names and meet with each individually. Of the 50, many were Confederate veterans. One in particular commented to Lee that he was impatient to make up for time I lost in the Army. Lee, his face flushed with anger, cut him off. Mr. Humphreys, however long your life and whatever you accomplish, you will find that the time you spent in the Confederate Army was the most profitably spent portion of your life. Never again speak of having lost time in the Army. And indeed, the student who went on to get his doctorate at Leipzig and enjoy a long career as a classics professor at three major U.S. universities added years later, I never did. Lee's schedule was strictly regimented. Breakfast at 7 a.m. At 7.45, he was in the college room that served as the chapel. At 8, he was in his office where he worked until 2 p.m. It was then he had dinner. On rare occasion, he returned to his office. At home, he napped briefly and then would take a long ride on Traveler. After a light supper at 7.30, he read the newspapers or pocket Bible. Friends were free to call from 8.15 until 10 p.m. Then the shutters were closed and he retired. While in his office, his work was enormous. At first, he answered all his mail. As an administrator, he gave his faculty great latitude. They might see him enter their class in the middle of a lecture. He'd linger for a while, then disappear. As president, he was in charge of discipline, and in that role, he was fair, but firm. Once he sent word to see a student from Kentucky whose behavior prompted attention. That student walked into Lee's office chewing tobacco. Chewing is particularly obnoxious to me, Lee said. Go out and remove that quid and never appear before me again chewing tobacco. The young man stepped out and a few minutes later returned with the same plug still in his mouth. Lee took one look and began to write. When he finished, he asked the student to read what would be posted in 10 minutes on the college's bulletin board. The note read, the student's name, is dismissed from Washington College for disrespect to the president. Lee was rarely harsh, but a decision he made was final. On Tuesday, October the 24th, he attended a trustees meeting and brought along essentially a shopping list. For the college, he wanted five new professors in five new departments. And by doing so, so began to develop one of the first elective systems in the country. As president, he was a quite successful fundraiser. One donor, a native of Rockbridge County, Cyrus McCormick of Reaper fame, agreed to donate $10,000.
While the new president settled in and created innovation in his role as educator, Reconstruction politics elbowed its way into his life. The 39th Congress had convened, and in that session, alarms were raised when four former Confederate generals, eight colonels, and various recent civilian Confederate officials showed up in Washington City to now serve as representatives and senators. And when they did, the city exploded. Republicans began to question the success of Andrew Johnson's Reconstruction plan. Those former Confederates were denied their seats, and consequently, a 15-man Joint Committee on Reconstruction was created. A few words about Lee in the post-Civil War period. Lee, more than most Southerners, knew the war was lost. It was over. To him, it had been decided by arms. What he and most of the South, or for that matter, most in the entire country, never really understood was that the Union of 1865 was no longer the Union of 1861. The war had transformed the nation. Now Congress was steering it toward humanitarian reform in the form of emancipation and equality before the law. This new union was recommitted to industrial capitalism and the role of government as servant to the business class. Antebellum affairs and Maurice were a thing of the past. At some level, Lee was conscious he had led an unsuccessful rebellion and, quite honestly, was very fortunate to be alive and not in prison, though he might have liked returning to a union he remembered and revered. He could not. Powerful, victorious hands controlled all that now, and no matter what he thought privately, he publicly devoted himself to resignation and cooperation. Much of this came to light when he was called to testify before the Joint Committee. In what had to be a very painful return to Washington City, with his former home, Arlington, in plain view, he arrived Friday, February the 16th, 1866. He wanted to visit old friends, but was hesitant. He wrote to one of those friends, I am considered now such a monster that I hesitate to darken with my shadow the doors of those I love, lest I should bring upon them misfortune. The next day, the 17th, he was sworn in. He wore a gray suit. It was his old uniform, one again stripped of Confederate insignia and buttons. It was all he had. Not since the war ended had he faced an enemy in such hostile conditions. The room silent. The mood tense. The Republican senator from Michigan, Jacob M. Howard, began what played out like a verbal chess match. He asked if the South would submit to taxes that would pay off a war debt that destroyed them. Lee answered they would. Howard asked if Southerners were willing to mix socially with Northerners who moved South. Lee answered that most would prefer not to do so. Howard then fished for how white Southerners felt about Johnson's plan for Reconstruction. Lee responded that as he believed, Southerners wanted restoration of civil government, and they believed the president's plan would do just that. He now asked about the freedmen, and Lee answered, I do not think he is capable of acquiring knowledge as the white man is. 
They are an amicable social race. They like their ease and comfort, and I think look more to the present tense than to the future. Howard then asked, how would an amendment to the Constitution be received by the secessionists or by the people at large allowing the colored people or certain classes of them to exercise the right of voting at elections? Lee answered, I think so far as I can form an opinion, they would object. Suppose an amendment should nevertheless be adopted. Would that, in your opinion, lead to scenes of violence and breaches of the peace between the two races in Virginia? Lee responded, I think it would excite unfriendly relations between the two races. I cannot pretend to say to what extent it would go, but that would be the result. When the committee then tried to link Lee with the sufferings of Union soldiers and Confederate prisoners— the former commander of the Army of Northern Virginia went on the offensive. He reminded the committee that his task was to send captured soldiers to the rear, where they passed out of his control. Yes, he thought they might suffer because his own men experienced a shortage of food and tents and blankets, and realizing this, he pushed for the resumption of the prisoner exchange program. In his own words, I offered to General Grant around Richmond that we should exchange all prisoners in our hands. The committee stirred uneasily, for they knew the exchange program broke down because of their political policies. Now Senator Henry T. Blow of Missouri picked up the questioning. As to his query about a constitutional amendment to grant freedmen suffrage, Lee asserted that, again in his words, at this time they cannot vote intelligently, and that black suffrage would, again his words, exclude proper representation, that is, proper intelligent people would not be elected. Blow followed up with, do you think Virginia would be better off if the colored population were to go to Alabama, Louisiana, and the other southern states? And to that, Lee answered, I think it would be better for Virginia if she could get rid of them. That is no opinion with me. I have always thought so and have always been in favor of emancipation, gradual emancipation. The senator from Missouri wanted to know if white Southerners were less than loyal to the Union, and if they were then, whether they or any of them are entitled to be represented in either House of Congress. This time, Lee's response was guarded. The feeling, so far as I know, is that there is not the equality extended to the southern states as is enjoyed by the north. And Blow fired back, You not feel down there while you accept the result? We are as generous as we ought to be under the circumstances? And Lee answered dryly, They think the north can afford to be generous. Howard now picked up the ball again. He asked about the fear that the South might renew hostilities, and Lee answered, I have no reason in the world to think so. Have you heard that subject talked over among any of the politicians? And Lee responded with, No, sir. I have not heard that matter even suggested. Howard probed further. If there was chance to renew the war with the aid of some powerful foreign ally, what in such an event might be your own choice? And Lee answered, I have no disposition to do it now, and I never have. To Lee, as he understood the question, 
His answer referred to his pre-war statements against secession, and the certainty that the North was about to invade Virginia forced his hand. The committee thought his answer incredulous. He, the man who had led an army that killed thousands of men in blue, Howard pressed, you understand my question? Suppose a jury was impaneled in your neighborhood, taken by lot. Would it be possible, for example, to convict Jefferson Davis for having levied war against the United States and thus having committed the crime of treason? Lee answered, I think it is very probable that they would not consider that he had committed treason. Howard asked, they do not generally suppose that it was treason against the United States, do they? I do not think they so consider it. Howard now brought it home. State if you please, and if you are disinclined to answer the question, you need not do so. What is your own personal views on the question, what are they? Lee responded, that was my view that the act of Virginia in withdrawing from the United States carried me along as a citizen of Virginia and that her laws and acts were binding on me. The committee was through with him, but Lee was not quite through with them. He cared little for politicians, Union or Confederate, and so offered I may have said, and I may have believed, that the position of the two sections which they held to each other was brought about by the politicians of the country. That the great mass of people, if they had understood the real question, would have avoided it. I did believe at the time that it was an unnecessary condition of affairs and might have been avoided if forbearance and wisdom had been practiced on both sides. With his parting shot at politicians, it was over. He had been on the stand for two hours. His themes of conciliation and healing had been constant. On occasion, his own feelings surfaced, but never to the point that the committee could attack him. Thus, a frustrated and disappointed committee excused him, and he gladly headed for home and his family. Rob and Rooney were farming back in the tidewater of Virginia, but Custis was now in Lexington, a professor of mathematics at VMI. A word about Lee's children. He very much wanted his sons to marry. But no question, Lee was quite possessive of his three girls. In fact, not one ever married. At the end of June 1866, Lee sat down with the trustees to evaluate his first academic year. Faculty had grown from four to 15. The college had received over $100,000 in gifts in the last 10 months. There were now 10 departments. A new chapel was planned, and Edward Clifton Gordon was hired to not only serve as superintendent of building and grounds, but handle Lee's clerical work. Things had gone so well, Lee's salary was doubled. Not bad for trustees, whose investment had been a borrowed suit and a loan of $50 last August. The former military man had done well as a civilian. His lifestyle, Spartan. Slept in a bare, whitewashed room, separate from Mary's quarters. His service revolver hung from a corner of his old camp bed, which served as his bed. There was an umbrella stand in the room. In it, 
no umbrellas, but in the stand, a sword that had been given to George Washington from the Continental Congress, and a sword that belonged to his father, Light Horse Harry Lee. There were two more of his own, one given to him from the Confederate Congress, and the other the one he wore at Appomattox. It was about this time, out on one of his rides, he visited with an elderly lady who lived north of Lexington. She made a point to show him the remains of a tree in her yard that had had its limbs blasted by Union artillery fire when they had raided the valley. She expected comment, and I'm sure was surprised when he said, Cut it down, my dear madam, and forget it. More of Lee's post-war views were neatly surmised in a response he gave to an English historian. Lee wrote that the South accepted the de facto results of the war and the extinction of slavery. But he was concerned that an overly powerful federal government would prove to be a threat to the rights and authority reserved in the states and to the people and would result in a nation that was sure to be aggressive abroad and despotic at home. As a creature of the 19th century, he believed each state had the right to decide suffrage, and that was a troubling and controversial topic during the summer of 1866. For there had been race riots in New Orleans and Memphis. The KKK had been created the previous spring. And amidst all the rumblings, there was his task of running Washington College. By now, there were over 300 students, and Lee was very hands-on in the school's building and grounds. To his new superintendent, he mandated that trees should not be planted in rows and that fences should be painted so as to be as inconspicuous as possible. His pet project? The new chapel. As to monitoring student achievement or lack thereof, a grade was given each student every week in every course, and that list made its way to Lee's office. Any student who faltered got a note to drop by. As one remembered, an invitation to visit General Lee was the most dreaded event in a student's life. By March of 1867, students and faculty could no longer hide within their academic haven for politics took center stage again when Congress passed the Reconstruction Acts. On March the 13th, 1867, Virginia ceased to be a state per se and was designated Military District Number 1. The measure meant that one of every four white men, former Confederates, were barred from voting, and that meant that five southern states now had more black voters than white. Within the potential powder keg created by this situation, Washington College students learned northern white speakers were going to make speeches to African Americans in Lexington. Five angry students decided to attend. One from Alabama carried a pistol. As they drew near, the Alabaman moved to peer through a window. As he did, a black man stepped out to intercept him. Startled, the student pulled his pistol and beat the man with it until others pulled the two apart. Later, the students were apprehended and jailed, all but one, the student from Alabama with the pistol. Word raced through campus, and many determined to rescue their fellow mates. Lee was at home and unaware of the disturbance, but another administrator intercepted the mob and defused the situation. The four in jail were released 
but charged with disturbing the peace. Still, Lee wanted to see them. When they entered his office, there stood the Alabaman who voluntarily showed up. He explained to Lee that he was the one that should be blamed. Lee agreed and immediately expelled him. The other four were placed on probation. As shown in circumstances like this, Lee preached conciliation, and that did win him admirers. There was, in fact, a Lee Association created in Poughkeepsie, New York. The Daily Sentinel in Evansville, Indiana, urged the National Democratic Party to nominate him for president. Most interesting for a man who was still waiting for presidential amnesty and pardon. Back in December 1865, his quality so inspired four students, they created an organization that modeled itself on his character. Today, Kappa Alpha Fraternity lists some 122 active chapters. And his character brings us to another innovation. A new student once asked President Lee for a copy of the rules at Washington College, and he answered, Young gentlemen, we have no printed rules. We have but one rule here, and it is that every student must be a gentleman. In essence, the honor system. At the conclusion of Lee's second administrative year, the faculty had, by the fall term, grown to number 22. Students arrived from not just Virginia and the South, but Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Kansas, and even California. By New Year's Day, the library numbered over 5,000 books. The chapel was almost completed, and there were 411 students, 10 times the student population than when the war ended. Donations were strong. Cyrus McCormick had added another 5,000 to his original 10,000. Richard S. Ewell, Lee's old Second Corps commander, donated $500, but stipulated that it be used to supplement Lee's salary. Lee thanked him, but asked permission to use the money for the school's general endowment fund. To Ewell, he then added a most interesting comment. For my part, I much enjoy the charms of civil life, and find too late that I have wasted the best years of my existence. His life and its work were indeed on his mind, for his rheumatism continued to pain him. Doctors in future generations would have known it was not rheumatism, but angina pectoris. His hair was quite white now, and he had added weight to the point that one might describe him as portly. And yet there was work to be done, and a huge affair for the college loomed. In March, in New York City, there was to be an event to raise money for the school. 500 prominent and potential donors were invited. So much looked promising, and then an event. On February the 4th, 1867, E.C. Johnson, a Union veteran and now teacher for the American Missionary Association School in Lexington, chose to take advantage of the iced-over North River. He went to skate. His presence riled locals, and at one point, after suffering repeated taunts and threats, a 12-year-old boy skated up to him and shouted in his face, You son of a bitch! Johnson lost it and pulled a pistol, 
threatening to shoot the youth if he used those words again. A crowd gathered and shouts rented the air, hang him. Though nothing more occurred, a spark had been created, and the resulting fire had severe consequences. Johnson complained to authorities the next day. Because Washington College students were involved, Lee wanted to see them. Two admitted their participation, and Lee immediately dismissed them. Another who was there but took no part asked that he might withdraw. Lee allowed him. Meanwhile, the event in New York City went well, but Washington College officials should have passed the hat right then and there for the backwash of the Johnson incident in Lexington was about to explode. Once again, the New York Independent took the lead. Blistering columns added fuel to those who found it disgusting that the rebel leader Lee was a president of any school. The paper went on to accuse Lee that after joining Confederate service, he returned to Virginia and handed over maps and drawings of federal installations in and around Washington City. Stories also surfaced of Lee's atrocious cruelty to slaves at Arlington. And the skating incident resurfaced. One story now reported the incident without a barb from any 12-year-old boy. Its spin was that to defend himself from Lexington locals and students, Johnson drew his pistol to save himself from a southern mob. Editorials made it clear that any money given to Washington College would be worse than thrown away. Even the old abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison entered the fray. He urged no money be given and shamed Lee in print. The PR disaster rolled on as the New York Times, Tribune, and Chicago Tribune piled on. The Tribune in Chicago tagged Washington College as a school run principally for the propagation of hatred to the Union. As a result, donations to the college fell to a third of what had been collected the year before. And to all of this, Lee continued his mantra, moderation, conciliation. And again, in a letter to his youngest son, Rob, we see more of a man who guarded his comments publicly. To Rob, he characterized blacks as those who are plotting and working for your injury. And yet, the complex man that was Lee wrote in the very next sentence, I wish them no evil in the world. On the contrary, will do them every good in my power and know that they are misled by those to whom they have given their confidence. Indeed, Lee believed that the alliance between blacks and manipulating Republicans was a threat to Southern whites and said repeatedly, I am rejoiced that slavery is abolished. But he could not support black suffrage for he feared that the African-American was not yet prepared and easily manipulated by others with selfish or self-serving agendas. In 1868, as the next presidential election rolled round, the Republicans made U.S. Grant their nominee. That decision prompted discussion on the campus of Washington College. And at one gathering, a member of his faculty offered scathing words about the man. And when he did, Lee's face instantly reddened, and with stern, measured words, he said, Sir, if you ever again presume to speak disrespectfully of General Grant in my presence, 
either you or I will sever his connection with his university. Though now, as Lee believed, Grant had become a tool of the Republican Party. The peacemaker at Appomattox, regardless, still held a special place in Lee's mind and heart. As clerical secretary and superintendent of building and grounds, again, Edward Clifford Gordon, who had almost day-to-day contact with Lee, felt qualified to assess the man he knew well. Gordon noted that Lee was extremely kind to animals. He had a particular fondness for children, especially girls. And despite that gentle nature, he had a fierce and violent temper. An intelligent man, his memory was astonishing, and his intuition about people and events remarkable. Throughout it all, Gordon noted he was very spiritual, believing absolutely in God. Perhaps his maker was looking after him on Christmas Day, 1868. On that day, Andrew Johnson proclaimed general amnesty for all Confederates who had not yet had their civil rights restored. Finally, he was free from arrest, trial, imprisonment. But Robert E. Lee still could not hold public office because he had yet to hear from his application for special pardon. There was another surprise the last day of May, 1869. He received the keys to a new house which was nearly twice as large and included running water. Early on, he found a favorite spot within by the bay window in the dining room. And there was more good news the first week of August when he, Agnes, now 28, and 23-year-old Mildred made their way to White Sulphur Springs. At the time of their visit, eight Confederate generals were there, and one night Lee was joined by art collector and philanthropist W.W. Corcoran, who arranged a meeting with the greatest philanthropist of his age, the 74-year-old George Peabody, who, back in 1867, created the Fund for Southern Education and endowed it with an unheard-of sum of $3.5 million dollars. Though entangled by some litigation, Peabody agreed to give $50,000 to Washington College. With the fall term about to begin, Lexington welcomed a visitor, one from afar, Frank Boucher. The black-haired artist arrived from Switzerland, complete with busy eyebrows, goatee, and a waxed mustache that stretched some six inches to each side of his nose. Some Swiss patrons commissioned him to paint a canvas commemorating the Union victory in the Civil War. He had already painted Andrew Johnson, William Seward, William Sherman. But his patrons wanted U.S. Grant, but Grant refused to sit for him. Boucher considered an end run. He came to paint Lee thinking that if he sat, so might Grant. He wanted to capture the scene at Appomattox. Despite the differences between the two men, Lee took a liking to the artist and even allowed him to stay at his new home. Lee agreed to sit, but refused to be painted in uniform. As he put it, I am a soldier no longer. So the two reached a compromise. Lee would pose in a relatively new black broadcloth suit, and on a table by his side, 
the Swiss artist laid out the sword, sword belt, sash, and uniform coat he wore at Appomattox. For three weeks, much to everyone's surprise, Lee said at hours permitted by his schedule. And on several instances, Lee revealed his feelings on several matters in a way that he did with no other American. While praising his character, he thought Jefferson Davis one of the extremist politicians. Later, reflecting on his being made a tool of the Republican Party, Lee made his only recorded criticism of U.S. Grant. Lee thought the war was created by a set of poor politicians and that it could have been avoided, but the Republican Party pressed the issue to make a name for itself. He even commented on the execution of Major Henry Wirtz, the Confederate commander at Andersonville, calling his execution judicial murder. The painting was revealed at a party at Lee's home on October the 18th. Now, perhaps no surprise to his family, they thought Lee's face was not as handsome as they saw it. And there was the quizzical twist of the eyebrows, but from the canvas, an arresting face, and on the lips, a slight smile. It remains only one of three of Lee from life that survives. The finished canvas was boxed in Lynchburg, sent to Norfolk, and shipped back to Switzerland. Back in his native land, the artist's patrons had wanted U.S. Grant and Union victory. They got Robert E. Lee, defeated general and college president. And they refused to pay him. The painting, considered the finest portrait of Lee, still hangs in the Swiss National Museum. The day the artist left, Lee came down with a severe cold. He rallied, but he knew something was wrong. The pain in his chest had grown worse. It surfaced more often. His Lexington doctors interpreted Lee's aches again as rheumatism. In truth, pericarditis. He was experiencing all the signs of angina pectoris, a condition that probably began when he suffered an undiagnosed heart attack at Fredericksburg in the spring of 1863. To his daughter, Mildred, who was away visiting friends, he wrote, I cannot walk much farther than to the college, some 150 yards, though when I get on my horse, I can ride with comfort. On January the 19th, 1870, he turned 63. On the 26th of that month, now U.S. President Grant signed a measure that restored Virginia to her rightful position within the Union. Though the future looked brighter, Lee struggled with his health, and people noticed it. One observed that he was, in their words, evidently laboring under great depression of spirits. Many at the college asked, some begged for him to take a vacation. He decided he would. With the Reverend Dr. John L. Kirkpatrick left in temporary charge, Lee arranged for his oldest daughter to watch her mother, and he and Agnes would take some time off. On Thursday, March 24, 1870, the two left. At the wharf of the James River and Kanawha Canal, he looked up and found hundreds of faculty and students there to see him off. No band, no speeches. Quite simply, hats were doffed. Bows were made. Lee returned the civilian salutes and climbed aboard. 
At a Richmond hotel, he bumped into 36-year-old John S. Mosby, who is now a successful lawyer. They moved to Lee's room to chat. Mosby remembered Lee looking, in his words, pale and haggard and did not look like the Apollo I had known in the Army. The visit was cordial, and as Mosby left Lee's room, he bumped into George Pickett, now 45 and a struggling insurance agent. Mosby suggested that Pickett drop by to visit his former commander, but Pickett didn't want to do so by himself, so the two returned to Lee's room. And to put it mildly, the meeting was painfully awkward. There was just simply too much baggage. The charge at Gettysburg, leaving his command at Five Forks for a shad bake. Mosby tried to serve as moderator, but Lee's tone was icy, face frozen. Pickett returned the coldness and word and demeanor. There was a brief farewell, and as Mosby and Pickett left, Pickett turned and said bitterly, That old man, he had my division slaughtered at Gettysburg. The words hung in the air. Then Mosby observed, Well, it made you immortal. On the evening of March 28th, he and Agnes crossed into North Carolina via train. At about 10 p.m., they stepped onto the station platform at Warrington in the old North State. A veteran who disbelievingly saw them at the station provided shelter that night. The next morning, the family provided their visitors with a carriage, and they proceeded to a cedar forest where Lee's daughter, Annie, was buried. Typhoid fever had claimed her back on October the 20th, 1862. She was only 23. Lee learned of her passing when he was camped near Winchester, Virginia. The news came in a stack of dispatches, and he read of her death with incredible self-control then proceeded to look over his other military correspondence. His aide, Lieutenant Colonel Walter Taylor, left Lee's tent and returned unexpectedly a few minutes later. He found his general, with letter in hand, weeping. And now, seven and a half years later, the father came to pay his respects. Though a rural cemetery, he and Agnes could not miss the grave, for locals donated money to erect a 12-foot granite column, a marker to honor the daughter of Robert E. Lee. That evening, they boarded the train that would take them to Augusta, Georgia, the first time either had ever slept in a Pullman sleeping car. Neither had any idea that a telegraph operator at the Warrington station flashed ahead four words to Raleigh. General Lee is aboard. It was around midnight when the train pulled into the state capital of North Carolina. Though late, there was a crowd. Inside the car, the two were awakened with shouts of, Lee! Lee! Neither he nor Agnes raised the curtain. By sunrise, like wildfire, the telegraph lines had been alive with the news. Crowds gathered at every depot. They held children aloft, gave rebel yells, or simply stood there with bared heads. Most of the town of Salisbury, North Carolina, turned out. No matter. Lee stayed on the train. At Charlotte, there was an even larger crowd, but Lee again did not emerge. 
It was pouring rain when the train pulled into Columbia, South Carolina. Two-thirds of it had burned back in February of 1865. The city had enough warning that a holiday was declared. There was a parade to the station, trumpets and drums. On the platform, a long line of his former officers stood. This was no stop-and-go station. It was a 15-minute layover, and Lee knew he had to make an appearance. He put on his coat and hat and stepped out into the cold rain. A band burst into tune. Little girls thrust bouquets into his hand, and the crowd cheered themselves hoarse all in the pouring rain. He repeatedly lifted his hat and bowed. Twenty-four hours into the trip, they reached Augusta. He had hoped the trip would be restful. It was anything but. There in Augusta, there was a morning-long reception. In the throng of people, a 13-year-old boy came to the hotel where Lee and Agnes stayed. He pressed his way through the crowd and worked his way next to Lee. And there he stood silently, looking up into the general's face admiringly. The boy's name was Woodrow Wilson. The next morning, the two made their way from Augustus to Savannah. His first assignment had been there, to assist in the construction of a fort on Cockspur Island. At the beginning of the war, he returned to improve seacoast defenses. Here, 160 miles from Augusta, Savannah had plenty of time to roll out the red carpet. When they arrived just after 6 p.m., a delegation met and escorted them to their place of stay. The crowd, the largest ever gathered in Savannah. Lady, seated in a carriage, stood and bowed. Back in Lexington, Virginia, his wife read correspondence from her husband, and in his letter, two classic understatements. The old soldiers have greeted me very cordially. And I do not think traveling this way procures me much quiet and repose. He confessed he regretted the trip and commented that the pain in his chest was now constant. There in Savannah, there was one unexpected highlight. He was reunited with his old West Point colleague, Joseph E. Johnston. Those who recognized the significance of the moment persuaded the two to go to a photographer's studio, and an image was made. In it, two graying lions in the winter of their lives, two who remembered the sound of trumpets in battle. From Savannah, he and Agnes boarded a steamer and made their way to Florida, but on the way there was a stop at Cumberland Island, where Lee's father was buried. I'm sure, a stop filled with mixed emotions. Under the burial marker for Light Horse Harry Lee, the father who left his son when he was six, the man who was a war hero, governor, and yet here he was, buried after a self-imposed five-year exile caused by the reckless speculation that bankrupted he and his family. At Jacksonville, to acknowledge the throng that gathered, Lee stepped out on a deck of the steamer and into the late afternoon sunshine with hat in hand. After Florida, it was time to head north and go back to Savannah. He and Agnes traveled. 
By now, the press made everyone in the country aware of Lee's unintentional triumphant tour. On the morning of April the 30th, they left Wilmington, North Carolina for Portsmouth, Virginia, then to Norfolk and up the James River. The two returned to Lexington Saturday morning, the 28th of May. He had been gone for two months and four days. He unpacked and immediately went back to work. He learned that in his absence, the trustees had decided to give Mary the new president's house and provide her with an annual income in the event of his death or incapacitation. Within hours, he turned the offer down, thanked them, and wrote, I am unwilling that my family should be a tax to the college. On a Thursday, June 23, 1870, he distributed diplomas to graduating seniors. It would be for the last time. The trustees were pleased by what they saw of their president in his sixth autumn at Washington College. He was impressive at two meetings of the trustees, and on September the 15th, when the new term began, after the invocation that day, he rose to make a strong appeal for students and faculty to attend daily chapel. To a friend in Baltimore, he wrote on Wednesday, the 28th of September, I am much better. My pains are less and my strength greater. In fact, I suppose I am as well as I shall be. He sealed the letter and started to leave his office, now located in the basement of the new chapel. Just as he stepped out to take his midday meal, he found a sophomore, Percy Davidson. Davidson had a small photograph of Lee, and a girl had asked him to have the general sign it. Not wanting to interfere with Lee's schedule, Davidson said he would come back later, but Lee said, no, no, I, I will go back and do it right now. After his customary dinner, he sat in his armchair. Agnes rubbed his hands, and he fell asleep. In the next room, Mildred played on the piano Mendelssohn's songs without words. By now, it was raining, and the distant hills covered in mist. The nap, as usual, was a short one, for that night there was a vestry meeting scheduled at Grace Church, the main item on the agenda, the expansion of the church. He really didn't want to go out this cold, chilly afternoon, but duty called, the most sublime word in the English language. And so he donned his gray military cape, and broad-rimmed hat and stepped into the parlor where Mildred was now playing Mendelssohn's Funeral March. That is a doleful piece you are playing. He kissed her and let slip out. I wish I did not have to go and listen to all that powwow. The meeting began at 4 p.m., and it ran long. It was cold, damp inside the church. So raw, Lee kept his cape on. He listened as discussion went on and on. The final item on the agenda concerned raising the rector's salary. Pledges were made, but despite them, they were $55 short of the agreed amount. It was then, even after he had already pledged an amount, Lee spoke up. I will give that sum. He walked home in the rain, went upstairs to hang his coat and hat, as he came downstairs, he heard Mildred laughing with two student callers. He was late for dinner. He knew it, and Mary reminded him, You have kept us waiting a long time. Where have you been? He did not answer. 
but took his usual place standing at the head of the table. Expecting grace, Mary and Agnes bowed their heads. He opened his mouth, but no words came. After a moment, he sat down. Mary broke the silence. Let let me pour you out a cup of tea. And then she offered, You look so tired. He tried to speak again, but could not. He set up ramrod straight in his chair as if coming to attention, but as Mary remembered on his face an expression of resignation that was sublime. It was a face they had never seen before. Alarmed, Custis went to him. Mildred was called and told to find doctors Barton and Madison. While the family waited, they helped Lee to his easy chair. Still, he could only make incoherent sounds when he tried to speak and appeared strangely passive. When the doctors arrived, they asked for a bed to be brought into the dining room, and it was placed at his favorite spot in the bay window. He was undressed and winced in apparent pain in the process. Placed in bed, it was Mildred who best captured the scene when she wrote, His lips never uttered a sound. The silence was awful. Mary recalled that her husband communicated with a warm pressure of the hand, yet rarely attempted to speak save in his dreams when his mind wandered to all those dreadful battlefields. His physicians noted that their patient was, in their words, averse to speaking using preferably monosyllables. The best diagnosis of what happened to Robert E. Lee was that he suffered a stroke, a rare one, unaccompanied by paralysis. He suffered a blockage that served his brain, most likely one or both frontal lobes, also impaired his cough reflex. He was unable to expectorate, and so some of the medicines, food, and drink found their way down into Lee's lungs, and that caused pneumonia. For two weeks, the scene remained unchanged. He lay on his bed in his favorite spot in the house, suspended between life and death. He lay there in silence. Again, as Mildred put it, the silence was awful. Mother Nature seemed to know what was going on, for the weather seemed to mirror the slow slide of a life. The rains continued. Bridges, boats, and docks were swept away. Locks in the canal broke up. The roads impassable. Indeed, at one point, 14 inches fell in 36 hours, causing the worst flooding in that part of Virginia in a century. However, For three days, there was a break, and it was then that the world learned that Robert E. Lee was slipping away. On the night of October 7th, 8th, another sign. The northern lights appeared over Lexington. It prompted one woman to remember a Scottish poem. Fearful lights that never beckon, save when kings or heroes die. By Sunday the 10th, the pneumonia was taking its toll. He was sinking. Mildred remembered he seemed to suffer more. On the 11th, his face held an agonized expression. It was an awful day, she wrote, everyone frightened and crying. The next day, as again, Mildred recalled, Wednesday morning found us still watching. A lovely October day, the 12th, 1870. 
At nine, he seemed to be struggling. I rushed for the doctor. He came, looked at him, and without saying a word, walked quietly away. It was soon after he turned with assistance upon his right side, then closed his eyes, and as his doctors recorded, as tranquilly as the setting sun, his noble spirit passed into the presence of his maker. Robert E. Lee's last campaign was over. Today, he, as so many other men and symbols of that era, he, they, all caught in the crosshairs of controversy. To some, he remains the traitor who broke his oath and led rebellious armies for a nation that represented slavery and hate. To others, he remains a military genius who led outnumbered, outgunned men to victory after victory. And yes, by doing so, he prolonged the war. And because of that, his mystic dirt of home, Virginia, and the South was devastated. Yet, in 1995, as Emory M. Thomas so beautifully wrote in his biography of Lee, to those who defend him, even in defeat, he remains a hero. But even those closest to him probably never knew the complete Lee, for they could not penetrate his reserve and understand the series of paradoxes that conditioned his life. He seemed preoccupied with sin, yet believed in redemption. He spent his life working with men and pursued what society considers the most manly calling of all, that of a soldier. Yet, he lived for women. In fact, his real friends were female. He was a soldier who sought nothing so much as battle, yet he avoided conflict in his relationships with people and in a strange way threw himself into the American Civil War in order to escape personal conflict. Turmoil was constant throughout his life, for this man was born and lived shackled to his father's debt and disgraced, weighed and wedded by his mother's obsession with self-control and correct behavior, to an education absorbed in rules and rote memory, bound in a profession where advancement was glacial, to a marriage of property that forced him to look elsewhere for friendship, to the presumption of racial superiority and the pretensions of a social elite, to children who seemed incapable of stepping beyond their father's shadow, bound in the prime of his life to a new nation that at the same time tried to define and defend itself, to an army that was always outnumbered and ill-supplied, requiring his genius to not only win but survive, then yet again bound to the shame of defeat, charges of treason, to a tiny school perhaps about to fade into oblivion, and finally bound by a cardiovascular disease in what should have been the pinnacle of his mature life. Robert E. Lee would have been a perfect character for Shakespeare, the tragic hero bound by and to duty. Indeed, as he once said, duty is the sublimest word in the English language. You should do your duty in all things. You can never do more. You should never do less. 19th century Americans were obsessed with capturing the last words of a loved one. 
They were held to be expressions from a dying person, words that bore testament to their journey, their human experience. Historical myth holds that Lee's last words were, strike the tent, fiction. His stroke prohibited him from making such an animated statement. Indeed, the last recorded sentence of any consequence made by Robert E. Lee was in that cold, damp church. At the end of a long meeting presiding over his church's vestry meeting, yet again, answering duty's call, I will give that sum. Once again, giving, an act of offering. Once again, giving something of himself to promote the happiness and welfare of others. Those who waited for Lee's last words from his deathbed missed the whole point of his life. Robert E. Lee was not about words. He was about deeds. Today, Robert E. Lee rests in the chapel, his pet project, the site that housed his office. With him in the Lee family crypt, his wife, his seven children all together, and his father, his beloved horse, Traveler, buried just outside. Almost immediately after his death, the trustees voted to change the school's name to Washington and Lee. Lee's son, Custis, followed his father as university president. In 1882, the Supreme Court ruled that Arlington had been taken illegally, and the property given back to Custis Lee. By then, there were already some 16,000 graves. The U.S. government offered Custis $150,000 for the property, and rather than move into an expansive and expanding graveyard, Custis Lee accepted the offer. And finally, if you will remember, Lee signed two oaths on October the 2nd, 1865. One was his oath as president of Washington College, the other was his special amnesty oath, a necessary element for the restoration of all rights and privileges of U.S. citizenship. That document never reached President Andrew Johnson, and therefore no one ever acted on Lee's request. His oath somehow made it into the hands of Secretary of State William Seward, who evidently thought it was a copy, and so gave it to a friend as a souvenir. Archivist discovered Lee's oath in some records of the Department of State and the National Archives. On July the 22nd, 1975, the Congress of the United States, in a joint resolution, voted to restore Robert E. Lee's citizenship. It was made official when President Gerald Ford placed his signature on the 5th of August that same year. Yet today, just as there are many who still idolize, there are just as many, maybe more now, who have chosen to never forgive nor pardon. Such heightens the personal tragedy of those forced to choose and live with the consequences of their decisions over a century and a half ago, during a time when polarization eclipsed reason and what was the right thing to do for all Americans was lost in rage, sectionalism, and partisanship. Sound familiar? Today, the school's motto remains three Latin words meaning 
not unmindful of the future, an adaptation of Lee's family motto. Perhaps for him, it should be not unmindful of the past as well. As to the school where he served as its president, after much debate, controversy, push and push back, on Friday, June the 4th, 2021, the trustees of Washington and Lee voted 22 to 6 not to change its name. Regardless of the vote, debate still smolders. And so, in life and afterlife, Robert E. Lee and the university that bears his name continues to draw lightning, continues to provoke commentary that ranges from historical to hysterical, that pushes the shifting elements that define the interpretation of history and place men like him in its crosshairs. For the 16th president, the month of November 1863 presented a time when a man and moment would forever be linked. On the 19th, he made a trip to Gettysburg and gave a timeless speech that perfectly captured the purpose for the Civil War and those that fought in it. However, when Mr. Lincoln made that speech, he was not only the President of the United States, he was also the head of all its military forces. Next time we gather, we'll tell the story of that side of his executive leadership. I hope you'll be with us when we tell the story of Abraham Lincoln, Commander-in-Chief. Once again, we are very pleased and honored here at Threads from the National Tapestry to welcome another who has shown kindness and consideration by becoming one of our patrons. Thank you and welcome Pastor Dennis Meyer from LaPorte, Indiana. We deeply appreciate your kindness. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Bob Grasser, Raleigh Civil War Roundtable's editor of the Knapsack Newsletter and the Roundtable's webmaster at raleighcwrt.org. That's raleighcwrt.org.